A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Catherine Jarmel, aka KJAMS, Principal Data Scientist at ThoughtWorks. So some key takeaways or thoughts from Catherine's point of view. Number one, increasing privacy around data does not mean you have to give up value. Number two, instead of data privacy being a blocker, it can turn no's to yeses because there is a better ability to restrict illegal or unethical use of data. Regulatory and legal people want to say yes to enabling use cases, so give them the ability to do so via data privacy. Number three, there are lots of tools available to enhance your data privacy now. This isn't some pipe dream. That said, don't look to replace person-to-person conversations and decisions with tech. You'll learn when to use what on your journey, and it's okay to iterate. Number four, empower the people who know the data best with privacy tooling. Don't make them build it themselves either. They will know best most of the time, but obviously also provide them a path if they have questions or concerns. Number five, privacy is a sliding scale not all or nothing. You can start off pretty kind of not great and still make progress as you continue to assess where you can be better. Number six, use privacy as a lens for how valuable your sensitive information actually is. Can it be used appropriately? If so, what's the value of leveraging that data and is it worth the privacy cost? Number seven, When thinking about what level of privacy to enact in systems, think about your comfort level if it were you. Would you want your location history shared at all times? 
Using a multicultural approach is important too, as different cultures have different norms around privacy, especially data privacy. Number eight, there are some basic stakes privacy tech you should use as part of just general information security to protect sensitive information. It might even be required by law. Then you should look to layer on privacy enhancing technologies on top to do things like actual anonymization. Number nine, privacy choices should be broad organization-driven decisions, not something one person decides to implement. But if there isn't buy-in, it can sometimes be tough to show people the business value of data privacy. Number 10, look to the privacy utility trade-off. How can we maximize privacy, but also maximize like what, what we need to do, right? Like what we have availability to do the task at hand. Number 11, an emerging practice that has a big potential impact on privacy in data mesh is federated analytics and distributed querying. Can we do analytics on data where it is without moving it to a big central place to do the analysis? I think that's still pretty early days on that. Number 12, a lot of data scientists don't want to work on things they feel are problematic. So work to prevent problematic use cases and the problematic data practices that can give rise to them. Number 13, privacy can be about first order problems like how do you anonymize your data? But it can also be much broader, like understanding the impact of what work we do on people and society as a whole. Number 14, we need to make privacy more transparent and obvious. Otherwise, people feel trick. People want to know what they get out of sharing their information. Number 15, in data mesh, look to offer the easy ability to adjust privacy, you know, privacy kind of knobs, so the domain expert can easily make choices without having to implement the tech. Enable privacy via the platform. Number 16, typically data privacy is applied at the data source. We are still learning how to do data privacy well in a federated setup with any cross-domain data combination restrictions, right? That's still pretty hard to do. Number 17, if you're constantly rejecting use cases, that will just create shadow IT. As an organization, figure out how you can get to a yes where you can. Then a final kind of closing note on my side, KJAMS is writing her a book on data privacy to fill the gap in information about privacy technology between kind of the very basic info and academic research. I recommend if you've got an O'Reilly account, checking it out for free. If you don't have an O'Reilly account, you can find all over the internet um, a free month. And so you can check out her book there, but it looks like it's going to be pretty interesting. It's still in early release as of the release of this episode. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode.
Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got uh, Catherine Jarmel here, who's a principal data scientist at ThoughtWorks. And we're going to be talking kind of all things data privacy, how data privacy is different necessarily than security and how people kind of always intertwine the two or mix them up and how that that like gets different. So we'll, we'll kind of go, what even is data privacy? We're going to talk about kind of the concept of empowering your librarians. Um, I've talked about maybe the concept of a data Sherpa. Where do we want to have these, um, the concept of do we want to embed the librarian aspect as being on the technical side or as in the people side? I think kind of it's yes. And we'll go into a little bit about that, but like we need people to guide people because ethics isn't something that is generally taught in a lot of aspects in computer science and things like that. So we'll jump into that, that, you know, privacy isn't just some thought experiment. It's, it's not a, wouldn't it be nice. There is stuff that is available now and that, we can move forward on this, you know, nobody's going to be perfect from the start, but like we actually can make progress on this. And then, you know, kind of the impact of federation on privacy. We've talked a little bit about that on security and, and how people think about it on governance, but like what, what does the federation actually mean for privacy? So with that kind of as the backdrop for what we're going to talk about, uh, Catherine, if you don't mind uh, giving people a little bit of, you know, some, introduction, your background on yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Of course. Thanks, Scott. Um, so I'm Catherine. Nice to meet you all. My nickname is KJAM, so you can find me on Twitter at KJAM. I've been doing technology uh, pretty much on and off for about 20 years now, and um, I found my love in data science. So data science didn't exist when I started in tech. Okay, it existed. Let's be real. Data science has been around for as long as we've been able to count, but it didn't exist as a title or a role. So I kind of meandered my way through things until data science was a thing, and I've been working in the field um, now officially under data science for about uh, 12 years or so, and I've been focused on privacy and security, specifically in machine learning and data science for the past six years or so, based on a few things that I saw as a data scientist out there in the wild. So um, I'm sure that will come up as, as we talk, but I'm really excited to be here and share some of what I know and maybe some questions and ideas with you all, the listeners. <laughs> awesome. Well, and I think that actually is a good um, transition point into the conversation of what you, you saw these things that are in the wild, you saw kind of the need, you saw what was going on. What, what were the, the things that first, like when you're thinking about what is privacy, what were the things that kind of triggered that and, and got you to say, I should dig in further to this rather than, you know, I just want to, I just want to play with my models and just go build like the fun <laughs> stuff and things like that. What, what, what made you kind of head down this path and we can kind of weave in the, what, what is your actual thoughts of what is data privacy? Yeah. I mean, so I was working predominantly in a area of machine learning that's called natural language processing, which is just using text. Um, it's come a long way uh, since then, but what I was doing is I was working as an independent consultant and I was working with quite a lot of clients. And I would often find that I was getting, let's say, customer data. I was getting, for example, direct customer data 
um, that supposedly had been, you know, cleaned and prepared and quote unquote anonymized for me. Um, and it was distinctly not. Um, so sometimes these were chats uh, from, from customers. Sometimes these were emails from customers. Um, and it was pretty worrisome. I was, uh, you know, I think for a lot of data scientists, they don't really want to feel like what they're working on is problematic, obviously. Um, that's starting to become more clear that potentially there's a lot of really problematic uses of machine learning. And I think folks in the field, um, just as any technologist, I think people want to be working on stuff they believe in. And they want to do the cool math and they want to do cool tech um, and they would rather not build um, potentially most of them would rather maybe not build uh, things that that hurt people in the world. And so when I noticed that and I saw that, I started asking myself, is there not a better way that we can solve some of these problems? And what I found was a, a burgeoning field of privacy technologies um, that has grown even more expansively since that time of real researchers and scientists working on thinking through how do we actually anonymize data? How do we um, prepare machine learning in a way that's more privacy friendly, and then also expanding beyond that into the space of how do we understand the impact of the systems that we build on society, which of course moves far out of technology and more into legal understanding, philosophy, if you will, um, psychology, um, the study of human and computers, um, and that interaction. And so now my, my breadth is much larger of how do we actually understand this problem? But I started it from just a technical problem I saw, and I was like, there has to be a better way. Um, and I found myself eventually in a much wider uh, group of folks asking these questions. So when you think about what is data privacy, I mean, like you just said, everything intertwines. So it is very difficult to to just have a, let's have a narrow definition. Give me your, what is data privacy in 10 words versus like when people are thinking about this, because I think it's kind of the same thing with when people talk about ethics in data, they think about, do I have um, a non-biased uh, input set for my my uh, model, and I'm like, that is such a myopic view because it's like, <laughs> are you doing harm? Kind of what you just said. If people don't want to do problematic things, like pop up to a higher level. Not can I do this? Not will this drive value? But am I doing harm in the world? And and sometimes you know, like. If you're thinking uh, people that are working in, in military things, it's like you are doing things that will cause harm to other people, but are they causing harm to your people and, and all of that? So we don't have to get into that level of ethics of, of, of everything. But there are some things that are clearly pretty bad, right? Like um, the the YouTube algorithm is, is just pretty evil based on how um, radicalizing it is for people. And yet... People just keep doing that work and they think that that's okay. And to me, you know, I obviously, um, you know, some people call me, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of pinko lefto or whatever. I don't, I don't care about that. But how do you think about like, what is data privacy? Where, where should people start if they're starting to look into this? Because what you just said was, you know, 
you're opening up Pandora's box. And so like when people start to go down the data privacy, is it, hey, let's just try and anonymize this stuff. Let's try to make sure that we don't have things that are that if if you you know the kind of Wall Street Journal test or the front page of the newspaper test of would your family think that what you did was wrong? Would they think that it was creepy what you were working on? Or like, how do you think about that intro to data privacy conversation with people? Yeah. I mean, I actually think it's like quite easy because usually all of us have like our own understanding of our own privacy. So I would say like, start at home, like start with what you're comfortable with, you know, and a lot of people say, well, I have nothing to hide and and this type of stuff. And that's totally fine. So start with where's your comfort. Um, Would you be comfortable uh, sharing your location at all times? Are you comfortable when you chat with one person that is forwarded or it's shared with another person, right? So like, where are your own personal boundaries? Because at the end of the day, privacy has like a very personal aspect to it, which is what makes it interesting and kind of different than a lot of other technical things that we study is privacy is based off of our kind of social and personal understanding of, you know, our information, our space, our humanness. And um, that's kind of some of our social and cultural understandings. And some of that is based also on our culture, right? So um, we're both American. Um, If I pull you aside and I say, hey, between us, this, that, and the other thing, um, I don't have to have you sign an NDA. I know that you know what I mean and that you're hopefully, if we have trust between us, you're hopefully not going to go immediately share that with 10 other people um, because we have that cultural understanding. But that's not the same across all cultures in the world, right? There's different ways that people signify this is private and signify this is public. And there's different understandings of that. Um, because there's there's many cultures where an entire family will share one single computer, for example. What's the privacy of your computer when it's a shared at-home device? That happens also in lower-income families here in the U.S. as well, right? So there's different aspects that different people are going to take to it. And I think that's the first is understanding that privacy is incredibly contextual for every person and that when we translate that into technology, often we end up losing the context. And that's where the problem lies. The problem lies in if we translate it into online and we forget to make it obvious, hey, are you are you speaking with a megaphone right now or with a whisper? <laughs> then people end up feeling like they've been tricked. And I think that this was common, let's say in the beginning, We've seen some shifts in this, which is great, but this was common in the beginning. For example, when you first signed up for Facebook, everything was always public and you were always fully able to be found by everyone. And I think that a lot of people didn't quite understand that that's how it was working. And so it's making these choices obvious where it's like when you're onboarding new users, how do they understand what privacy space they're working in? How do they translate the real world where it's a little more obvious if I'm just talking with you? And how do we translate that into online spaces? And then there's, of course, legal aspects and, you know, deep, also scientific aspects of privacy. But I think starting with the human centric is always important 
of how do our users or how do I myself understand privacy in this software or in this online space? Well, and, and, you know, a lot of these companies, the privacy aspect, they don't want you to, they want you to have as, as loose of things. So again, that's that ethics about they want to collect as much information on you as possible because then they can, you know, monetize it. And I've talked about this of, um, when you think about uh, data mesh, are you are you using what information you already have within the company? Are you going to start sourcing additional information about your people? So you know, um, but that stuff can be used very, very uh, negatively, right? Like, should you be collecting all this information? You know, if I, I've got a, a stopwatch app or something or, or an alarm app on my phone. Should it be collecting all this personal information about me? Should it be collecting my location at all times? Should it be doing? It's like, no, you know, I, I have one that's like a flashlight app. And the reason I have it is because it doesn't ask for any permissions other than for the camera because it needs it for the actual light on the camera. And that's the only thing. And it's like, I don't have any file access. I don't have any of these. You download all these other ones and it's trying to, to get access to absolutely everything because they want to sell it. And and it's like, okay, that's clearly not okay from my perspective. But if I were to ask my parents about that, they have no idea. They don't think of what nefarious use could this be. And so, you know, some of this, do you think that where we're headed that, I mean, there's kind of the destruction of privacy, right? A lot of people, especially younger people, think about everything they do online is fully public. And so that's that's kind of shifted the way they think about things. But I mean, do you think that we're going to have cultural shifts that happen simply because these companies have forced these things that are not private on us or, you know, uh, and, and how do you how do you talk to you you know you work with clients right how do you talk to clients about keeping the ethics in this about that there should be privacy and that this this does have a value add in the end because of the trust it builds and things like that yeah yeah i'll try to kind of do multi part there um so i like to reference the work of dana boyd and she's uh she founded data and society but before that she did a lot of research on teenage girls and privacy online she wasn't exactly sure that that's what she was studying but this was her thesis um it's just studying teenage girls and and social media and figuring it out and i don't know it's uh i have some teenage uh teenage in my life, let's just say. And um, I don't think it's a thing anymore, but there used to be this thing called Finstas. Do you remember Finstas? That was a fake, it was a fake Insta or a fake Instagram. So it's called Finsta. And the idea would be, and, and what Dana Boyd found in her own study is that teenagers at that point in time, which is now I think 20 years ago, or maybe 10 years ago, 
were really good at figuring out how to navigate the different contexts. So they would create fake profiles to do certain things, and they would create other profiles to do public things. And they would kind of create their own different contexts by creating new accounts, by using different devices, this type of thing. And what they were really looking for, and Dana Boyd's definition of privacy, which I found really important, is is about being able to define who you're sharing data or who you're sharing information with and how it's being shared, right? And so they were creating their own way, um, which I think is pretty cool. I think a lot of young people today do similar things. Um, so they know that kind of things they post online can get out of their hands, but they're also very careful about which groups they share which things with. Um, and of course, since COVID, I imagine that's only increased in terms of doing things more and more online. So it's quite quite clever, actually, when you look at the way folks are kind of who are very technology native are figuring out ways to navigate this. And I think I see that as very hopeful and optimistic towards, hey, what the consumers maybe actually want is not that they're willing to never share information is that they want to know what information is being shared. They want to understand what value they're getting out of it. And they want to be able to navigate that conversation. And I think that's what we've seen, you know, kind of Apple uptake now as a rallying cry is that privacy is important. Um, Apple has pushed forward, you know, of course, the marketing around, uh, you know, iPhone means privacy, basically. And also a lot of the UI elements that are saying, hey, so-and-so app wants to use your location right now. Is it okay or not? And I think they're trying to create a more uh, easy and transparent conversation around this. And I would say rather than companies avoid this conversation, if you're willing to lean into this conversation, I think the consumer response is often going to be quite positive because I think there is a little bit of despair in people that, oh, just privacy is dead and all my information is everywhere and whatever, I just give up. I, I talk with a lot of people that feel that way personally and it doesn't have to be that way. And um, Apple is also one of the big ones pushing privacy technology along with several other companies. But it doesn't ha- also have to be only those companies that offer more advanced privacy. And I think that's some of what um, I've been doing in my time at ThoughtWorks is talking with companies and telling them, here's some ways you can use more advanced technology to offer more privacy, but still get value out of your data. And I think that's also one of the beauties of data mesh, right? Is like, if you have data you're not using, it shouldn't be a data product. Maybe you should stop collecting it. And if you have data that's super valuable, then hopefully you can deliver some of that value back to the customer and then they're willing to give you their data for it, right? So this is, this like really puts the like value centric on data collection and data usage, which I think changes the paradigm significantly around privacy. Well, and, and, you know, I, I have the somewhat skeptical view of, of Apple because immediately after they started doing those things, they created their own ad network. So they are doing it for certain reasons. <laughs> they've got, yeah, they've right. got, but yeah, they, yeah. they have at least been doing it versus Google is just still free for all. Um, but so, so I think uh, a lot of, of what you keep coming back to that I'm noticing in this is, you know, 
a lot of the like thought pattern and the the psychology and the philosophy and aspect, but you keep sprinkling in the word technology a lot. So I think we can jump into that that aspect of it. It like we said it, it in our pre call. It's not this. Wouldn't it be nice? There is stuff that is out there. Do you think of the approaches to this as more being apply the technology because the technology exists and that the philosophy, you know, it's pretty easy to pick up or like, because like on the data mesh side, a lot of people are just trying to throw tech at the, at the challenge and that's not working for anybody because the tech isn't there anyway. And, you know, all, all sorts of other reasons, but, um, there is so much of an organizational need to it. Do you think it's the same way on the privacy side, or do you think we're far more advanced on the privacy side that there is things that people can do immediately, or there's things that, where you can throw tech at the problem and that it's not as much organizational? Like, how do you think about how can people actually do this? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, well, I can first explain a little bit of the technology that's available, and then let's think through together how organizationally um, it needs to. Obviously, there has to be buy-in, right? There has to be buy-in, and there has to be some some type of internal demand for privacy technology. You can't just go rogue and apply technology privacy or privacy technology wherever you want and then tell your boss later, please don't do that. Or maybe, do, I don't know. I don't know how your org works, but if it's going to work for you like that, feel feel free. Be a privacy cowboy or a cow person. Um, but um, what I do think, so there's numerous areas of privacy technology. There's actually an entire field now that's called privacy engineering. So you can look it up. It's on Wikipedia. It's very interesting. And there's several kind of fields of technology within that space. So let me just quickly walk through them. So there's a kind of basic privacy techniques, which is kind of what we might think of as pseudonymization. You might have heard of tas uh, tokenization, masking, um, these types of, there's format preserving encryption. There's a few of these. And this is, I would say, the most basic. And I would say everybody should be doing minimally that which is basically protecting PII, personally identifiable information, or other very sensitive information with some basic protections so that when a new person joins the company, they can't just automatically access everything. And similar to my experience in natural language processing, this is great for if you're working with external contractors or consultants to make sure that they don't have direct access to private information. That's the, that's the basic stakes, right? And that's just smart computer security and information security. Then we have a second stage, which is actually thinking through actual anonymization. And I would say that there's a lot of older ways of thinking through anonymization that have been proven time and time again to just not work. For example, K-anonymity continues to be broken time and time again. Can send uh, many papers of different attacks on K-anonymity that are often quite successful. And so if you're going to be releasing data to a third party, if you're going to be releasing data publicly and you would like to actually anonymize it, you have to use differential privacy, 
which is a technology that was first defined or was at, at least mathematically defined by Cynthia Dwork in 2006, but now is actually readily available, is being used in production systems. The U.S. Census used differential privacy for 2020. Um, the IRS and Wikimedia are looking into differential privacy. There's many other large orgs. Um, Apple does differential privacy now for years. Uh, so does a team at Google. So there's even open source libraries. There's tools. But if you're going to be releasing data publicly, the only safe way to do so and to claim anonymization is to use differential privacy. We can talk further about it. Then there's other cool stuff. There's like federated learning and federated analytics, which means we leave data on devices or we leave data on-prem or we leave data wherever it's sitting, which I think is especially interesting for data mesh. And then we run queries that are distributed queries, and we essentially are able to still answer those queries without pulling the data itself um, from those locations which is really cool because you could essentially even do it across a bunch of edge devices. You could do it across a bunch of mobile phones, as long as you have software that's running on those phones. So this is another, you know, privacy mechanism that employs what in German we would lovingly call Datensparsamkeit, which is data minimization. <laughs> so um, where we don't collect all the data, but we can still analyze it and we can still answer questions with it. And you could even train machine learning models with that call uh, using a process called federated learning. And then there's also other cool stuff uh, like encrypted computation. And so what I was working in before I joined ThoughtWorks was called, uh, it, it was an encrypted machine learning startup and we were working on distributed encrypted machine learning, basically figuring out can multiple people train models together using only encrypted data. So the data is never decrypted as part of the training process. And there's an entire subfield of cryptography called encrypted computation. And we were using uh, an area of it called secure multi-party computation. And our work is also open source, and there's several others in the space of encrypted computation who also have open source libraries and so on and so forth. So all of this stuff is real. All of it can be used. I think it's pretty cool, but obviously um, it's going to require some technical expertise and it's going to require, I'm assuming that you're also thinking some organizational buy-in, although I'd be curious to your opinion on that. Well, exactly. What I was going to say is who actually needs to be bought in to this? Does it need to be the supplier and the producer? You know, and how do you enable domains to do this? Because exactly what you're talking about of th this all sounds great, but if I can't test that I know the quality level of the, the data that I'm using, you know, let's say we, we are keeping it on the device. How do I know? that it's actually usable, right? And that I'm not trading privacy for quality and that I still know how that is. And then how much buy-in is needed? Is this that it's just that um, the users have to only be the ones that are bought in or is it that the, the data producers have to be bought in or is it at the platform level? Or how do you see that kind of going down, right? Like, I know there's, there are two kind of, wildly different questions, but I think they kind of intertwine at the same point. 
Yeah, yeah. And you're getting to what we often call the privacy utility trade-off in data science, um, which is, is really great. And it's about, hey, can we find a way to maximize privacy, but also find the sweet spot where we also maximize enough information to do our task at hand? So let's say we're trying to train a machine learning model and we want to use differential privacy because we want the model, we want to claim that the model is anonymized, right? Um, we're going to have to tune that and we're going to have to find, there's a few parameters that you tune. We're going to have to find that balance between the anonymization we're looking for and the accuracy that we're looking for. And that's the same way with, with federated and so forth is we could end up having a device like you have a phone, I have a phone. And let's say you only use your phone to make photos of amazing dinosaurs. And I only use my phone to make photos of cats. Uh, if we're trying to train an image, image uh, recognition model together, you know, our, our, let's just say our model's probably not going to be super great, <laughs> potentially. And so it's about recognizing, oh, here I have an outlier. I should maybe drop them out of the next training round. And there's ways we can kind of assess that. It's not perfect, right? But there's ways we can assess that and we can adjust. Um, and with that, I think then starts coming the domain-specific requests because when I'm thinking about this in terms of data mesh, so who's in charge of making that decision, right? Is that somebody on uh, in that particular domain? They obviously need to have domain understanding, deep domain understanding, but they also need to have deep data understanding, and they should probably be at least remotely aware of the privacy tech that they're using and kind of understand how to turn the knobs. And so to me, this feels like a few people and it feels like it has to be led from the, the DPO, right, to some degree. There has to be like a need for this from the data product um, owner who says, hey, there, there's a need for this. We have a new data product we want to offer that's an anonymized stream, let's say, of, of user activities on a, a daily basis or something like this. And then it has to be the type of organization that's going to embrace some level of experimentation. And I think that's almost always the case when you're doing data work. But um, I would say that the organizations that are going to be the first movers on this stuff are organizations that are willing to embrace experimentation and to allow and empower their data teams to try out a new idea with the concept that it may fail or it may take them a while to find, again, that good balance. And so, I mean, if, if I were to sum up a little bit of what you were saying there, are you saying just that the the burden of this falls on the producers much more than the consumers because the consumers can only consume what they've got? They can't be like, we're going to uh, take your data product and encrypt it and then we're going to do it so we never get that? Or is that too much of a burden to put on to the consumers? Or, or how do you think about, like, if somebody wants to do the right thing, do they have to push the right thing upstream? That's a very good question. Presumably, you could consume and then apply privacy. That would be much more difficult, though. It's, it's actually easier to do it at source, 
because of the way some of these technologies work. It's just easier to do out of source. Of course, the federated option would be amongst many different data providers or data owners. And so um, if you're thinking of a federated option or if you're thinking of distributed learning, either unencrypted or encrypted, you're going to have to, of course, coordinate across multiple teams anyways. And this is sometimes uh, what even I think we're discussing internally at, at ThoughtWorks is we have a series of data products that consume data from multiple points. How do we show essentially what we want to show is like data taint. So almost like uh, code taint from security paradigms. We want to show that the data from domain A uh, should never flow to domain C. Um, but we don't know because there might be intermediary steps. And so it's kind of like, how do we try to enforce the right privacy so that when we have outgoing flows from producers to consumers, the consumers can understand, hey, here's the privacy requirements if you offer this as your own data product, right? And, and I think that it kind of comes back to a little bit around like zero trust and things like that, which is more security than it is privacy. But um, talking to Sarita Baxt at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Oh, looks like Gabby wants to make an appearance. Okay, hi, Gabs. Uh, that um, what they're doing, they're they're a bank, right? And so every single, they don't have anything that's really, you can discover what data is available, but you can't get access to any data by default. And some people think, well, that's a terrible idea. Everything should be accessed by default. And it's like, you can't box out the potential for everything. Right. And so you can't it's, um, you know, I, I make the joke about um, there There are two sets of knowledge in the world. There's the book of everything they teach you at Harvard Business School. And then there's the other <laughs> book of everything they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. And it's, you know, it's like the Venn diagram of the entire world of knowledge. And it's like, no, that's not the way this works. You can't you can't pretend that you're going to be able to foresee everything. So they have registered use case. And if somebody is registering their use case, they sign a kind of user contract that it's not just that the data contract is for the producer uh, to that that they have to adhere to for the the consumer. The consumer has um, you know kind of what do we owe each other, and so that consumer like what do we owe each other? That consumer user like usage should flow up to the producers. And that those producers should be able to go, no, 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 wait. Or, you know, users saying, hey, we want to do this. And, and, you know, if they're just kind of spelunking around and poking at things, it's like, okay, you put people into a sandbox and you don't make it that they can actually do a lot of things. And they might have seen something that you didn't necessarily want them to see, but they weren't able to put it into production and share it and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, we we crossed a line we didn't want to cross. But like, I guess I'm I'm trying to figure out how do you do this where you don't have to to do a million if then statements or that you say you know here's the only thing that that is allowed and that you still make it so that people can figure out like potential new use cases without having the same thing that we always have of going to the producer and and having to you know really uh beg for the data and and do all of that stuff you know it's it's supposed to be better in data mesh but is it if we're if we're trying to do these privacy you know i'm 
I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't do privacy, but I also want to, I'm sure there are people that are like, this is just going to stop up all of our works. Like how, how do you think about preventing that? Yeah. And I think from, from folks who work in finance, they know the pain of this probably also if any, anybody's listening from insurance and, and so on and so forth is there's like strong regulatory and audit controls and their data scientists often feel like they're just getting no's, you know. And what uh, what I like to think about is privacy technology is what turns no's into yeses because we can actually say, hey, let's anonymize this data and then we can use it, right? Or, hey, let's add anonymization as a step in our machine learning pipeline or as a step in our training and let's do it. Or let's work in encrypted space first. And if we get it right, then we can move to plain text space. And so there's numerous ways that we can employ these technologies. And if we actually have the conversation between, you know, the regulatory folks and the legal folks who want, honestly, they want to say yes, right? They're not, they're not curmudgeons. They want to say yes, too. And we have that conversation between the privacy folks who are the experts on regulatory privacy at your org and the data folks. If you can start that conversation, I think a lot of times it can go pretty powerful places, especially with the help of saying, hey, let's try out this privacy technology and let's see if it's going to work for us. And if so, we can broaden the use case definitions. And I think... Um, in terms of yeah, documenting use cases and thinking through it, I think it also goes a long way to do a little bit of ambassador work, if you will. If you if you work in data and you're tired of dealing with auditing and regulatory stuff, then it does a lot to just go talk with those folks and say, hey, I'm in the EDA part, which is the exploratory data analysis step. And often when we're in the EDA part of analysis, we're not even sure if we want to use the data. We're not sure if it's going to be good for what we're trying to do. We just want to play with the data a little bit and see some information about it and then move on to decide whether we want to use it or not. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is how can we make safer EDA so we might grant access to the data for just one week. And we say, you have one week, here's your sandbox, um, let us know if you want to actually consume this data product after your one week is expired, right? So this could be one example of something that works. Another example could be, why can't we show more about the data in the data catalog? Why can't we show what are the values here? We can use descriptive statistics. We can say like, here's some other cool use cases that were built with this data product. Here's the data quality metrics. Here's the last refresh data. Here's, you know, what, what we think it might be good for in terms of machine learning or in terms of this. Here's the, the amount of data that we have, right? And start date and end date and, and, and you know, these types of things. So there's some really, at the end of the day, not that hard things we could offer, especially if we have, you know, this centralized data catalog or this idea of a data catalog of all these great data products that are available across our org. There's some pretty cool stuff we could make available that I think for a data scientist would be like, oh, yes, that's the data I want to use. Let me go talk with those folks. And so I, I think it actually uh, really helps empower us if we're moving away from just 
uh, the swamp that has everything for the last 30 years that nobody has looked after. You know? So, yeah. And, and I'm going to highlight like, uh, I don't know how many words off the top of my head, four or five words, what you just said of let's go talk to those folks. So six words, right? <laughs> to me, this is something that a lot of people are trying to avoid in data mesh. And that is everything needs to be automated. Everything has to be via the technology policy. Via It has to be set up ahead of time. Everything has to be there versus the technology enables high context exchange and fast time between decisioning and execution. And that you, you don't have to do everything ahead of time to prevent all potential issues versus you set yourself up to do the right thing quickly and easily so that you don't have the, you know, cowboy, cow person. Uh, I, I just think cow person doesn't have the same connotation. I think people might be like, what? Um, somebody in just a cow onesie or something. But um, that you don't have people that are going and trying to get around these things because you you enable them once somebody can actually, you know, they can get past nose, right? That they can turn the, we haven't done that to a yes. And so how are you seeing this working? Like, how are you seeing that? It, because people, again, want to throw tech at every single problem because we keep saying it's a people problem and people keep getting more and more frustrated about that in data mesh. They, <laughs> they want one thing that isn't a people problem. But I feel like, you know, we can set up the tech to make this low friction from a people problem standpoint. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about, I love that you're saying like the technology is there to help speed up the conversation and make the decision easier, but trying to remove people from technology is silly because technology wouldn't even exist without people and people are always going to be a part of technology. And so anytime you think, oh, I'm going to make a technology to solve a people problem, you have to really ask yourself, is this what people want? Right. And I think for most folks that have been doing compliance, audit, regulatory stuff, let's say even for several decades, is they often have started tons of initiatives to try to help technologists make better decisions. There's not a single you know, lawyer I've met in my time working, which, you know, again, I've been in the space for six years that doesn't want to have the conversation that wants to actually help technologists make better decisions. And so I think bothering yourself to have a Zoom coffee or a in-person coffee if you're back in the office with legal is going to actually make your life and their life a lot more pleasant. And you're probably going to end up having a lot of things in common in terms of what you're trying to do. So I think that the the idea that it's just an obstinate no for no reason is ungrounded. And I think that, um, that yeah, the, that at the end of the day, we're all a bunch of humans uh, with computers walking around and we're going to have to incorporate the human element at some point in time should we want to get our work done? Should we want to actually, and I mean, that's the whole point of data mesh, right? Is that 
we're aligned on what's the business value that we we're ha- we're small teams that we're moving towards that and that the conversation also that we shouldn't forget is a conversation with the customers or the people whose data that we're working with and collecting because at the end of the day the consent comes from them and the usage comes from them right so that's another conversation we should pull in not only intra org but uh user research and talking with our users and and seeing how they would like their data to be used so we we talked in the pre-call about you know you use the phrase empower your librarians right like uh, it's it's funny how many people on this uh podcast have an actually you know library and information sciences background right it's it's um something that uh, i think i've had uh two people that have phds in it and like a couple other that are have like masters and stuff in it because um you know we've been figuring out how to share human knowledge without somewhat without technology for you know millennia Right. Uh, You know, even back in the day, we had catalogs, we had different things. But a lot of this is like we need to empower people to go and get to the information that matters. That's a big part of of Data Mesh. Um, But how do you think about empowering the people if somebody wanted to take some practical steps, say, say they're like, okay, KJAMS, you've, 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 or is it KJAMS or KJAR? KJAM. Okay. KJAM. Um, KJAM, you, you have uh, convinced me. I want to go down this route. What are some like practical steps, right? Is, is this that you want these kind of data Sherpas or whatever that you've got people that are helping people um, that are kind of distributed in each of the domains, each of the domains should have a privacy head. And, and when people think about domains, like that's a big, that's a loaded word because, you know, uh, JGP from PayPal was talking about domains and they're two pizza team domains. So it's three, f- four, maybe five people in a domain when Amara Gafur was on and was talking about working with a hundred thousand plus person uh organization, there are 21 domains. So, you know, I don't think two pizzas are going to feed 5,000 people or anything like that. You know, I, I, we can get into all the like things of the the Jesus with the, the two fish and the five loaves of bread or whatever, but no, I, I don't think anybody's going to work a miracle and just keep producing pizza somehow and making it feed 5,000 people. So like, how do you think about that? data product owner having to also pick up privacy and this is might be new rules for them. Like, I guess I'm just asking for, uh, I'm, I'm spinning around the axle on this of asking where do people start? Like, what does the beginning of good look like? What does eh look like from, you know, EH instead of MEH, like meh is, is bad. Eh is like, eh, it's okay. So like, how do we get from meh to eh? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think, I mean, I think minimally, not every domain is going to have sensitive data, right? So at the end of the day, sensitive data is maybe uh, internal proprietary company data that let's say should never be shared cross domain, or that should at least be documented if it's cross domain, right? That's potentially, hopefully easy to document. Then we have, you know, person related information, and then we have PII, 
right? Which is personally identifiable information, which likely your company already has a set definition of what they consider PII and what they don't. And so these are like the three different uh, groups of sensitive data. And then if those are at least documented, that's the first, that's the first step. Do we actually know where this data is? Good job. Then you're you're probably meh to eh if you can answer that with confidence. So if you're listening right now and you're giving yourself a pat on the back, good job, you. Um, then moving from maybe eh to like heh. <laughs> sorry, I'm making it up as I go. It's, um, it's kind of saying, okay, can we document the flows then? So we often call this like lineage tracking. So can we figure out where the sensitive data is going, who's consuming it, and maybe what they're using it for. That would be, now you're starting to get a grip on, okay, um, do we understand how sensitive data is delivering value across the org? That's great. And then you're moving from hat to like ha, if you're starting to be like, wait a second, maybe we actually don't want these use cases to use directly the sensitive data We'd like to try out a privacy technology or we'd like to figure out what's that sweet spot again between privacy and utility for these use cases. Or you might even figure out, oh, we didn't even know that these whole new realm of use cases exist for this sensitive data. We'd like to actually make a new data product that offers it more widely, but that also uses some privacy technology, right? So you can kind of find yourself in a decision tree there where you can start to actually broaden usage technically of sensitive data by being intelligent about figuring out what's the value of the sensitive data at the org and what are people trying to use it for and how do we enable them um, to use privacy technology. And what um, I have been saying in, in the blog article series um, at ThoughtWorks that I've been writing on privacy and data mesh is at the end of the day, so first experiment, first try things out, empower the librarians, empower the people that understand the data at the core, right? Because they're going to be the ones that understand this privacy utility trade-off very deeply. And then if you figure out that something works, build it into the platform. You know, you don't have to solve the same problem a hundred times customized, build it into your platform and then teach people how to use it. And then you can spread it. So the beauty that I see of data mesh is if something works for one data product, never keep that information siloed. That's the whole point. Try to build it into the platform. If that's going to take a while, try to go, you know, evangelize it internally and talk with folks and say, hey, here's how we solved it. If you want to come take a look at our code, if you want to come work alongside us, please do. But the whole point is that it's a lot more grassroots way of spreading knowledge. It doesn't have to go top down. It can go side to side. And I think that when I first heard about Data Mesh and I read Shabak's book, that really was what inspired me to start thinking about privacy um, in Data Mesh of how we, how we do this is like that I saw this as like a very democratizing thing that would allow, you know, domains to share knowledge without having to go through the rigmarole of up, down, sideways through the org chart. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think... Um, one point in there that, you know, again, talking about Sarita Back's episode about one thing that I think a lot of people skip over is when somebody knows 
how their data is going to be used, they can be far more comfortable. This is where I think Amara was talking about um, in her episode about should we have source aligned data products on the mesh? And in certain ways, um, I kind of agree with her that we shouldn't. And in certain ways, I don't uh, because it puts it puts less of a burden on the producers and things like that. But it also means that they can put things in there where they don't have to think about how could this be misused. And so Sarita was talking about with a registered consumer, they have a registered use case and say, I am going to use it in this way. Will you provide the data for me? And if they misuse it, it is on them. The regulators go after the, the consumers and the bank says, no, the domain that you were going after is not the producer. Somebody misused. They had a, a, a like literal legal agreement internally that says that this is the way that they're going to use it. So exactly what you talked about of that information flowing upstream as well. Again, like I, I did this thing of uh, this episode, this mesh musing about what do we owe each other? And a lot of it is, is what are we trying to do? What, are, what is our context? What, what are we seeing? Like sharing that information with each other. Um, and then exactly what you talked about as well. Um, Ali Reza Sohofi's episode was talking about um, they're building a platform and like they've made it very, very easy for people to... Um, contribute, you know, commit things to the platform. And so, you know, they can say this is an approved thing and we actually are making this more broadly available, but other people can also go in and say, this thing hasn't been fully merged in, but it's in kind of a holding pen while we figure out, can we merge it in? Does it work? But you've got that there. And so we kind of need that from a knowledge base too, about like people just I don't know, doing like a five minute talk into the camera about here's what we were trying to do. And here's what we did. Like just like those little high context exchange. I, I talk about this with, I think every data product should have three videos by people on the team that are producing the data product. And it's just three videos that are in the data catalog. And it's like the same perspective. You might even ask the same questions. Like I'm trying to do this with this survey thing I'm working on of asking the same questions of multiple people in the same organization implementing data mesh and you'll get different answers and people are like, well, what's the right answer? And it's like, that's the single source of truth BS versus we all have perspectives and we all have different information. So yeah, I I know I'm, I'm somewhat preaching to the choir here, but like, you know, it's still, I think a lot of what you're talking about is just we have to try this out. We have to think about how people could use this, but privacy, these conversations, because if we think about actually leveraging privacy, then the producers can be far less concerned about how people are going to use it and that they can get more information about, oh, you're actually trying to accomplish X. Well, I get that you're trying to use my data product one, two, three, but we should do one, two, four, because this is going to serve you five X better. And hey, I know this other domain that we're going to go to them and they're going to create data product, you know, two, three, four, and they're going to, that's going to serve, 
you really, really well for your use case and that you just have that high context exchange. So I know I'm, I'm preaching at you, but like it, it, it seems like a lot of what you're saying just keeps wrapping into that greater data mesh conversation. Absolutely. And I think what's really well known is just saying, no, you can't use the data. You're just going to create shadow IT. And if you don't know that term, that's basically so somebody's going to figure out how to get access and they're going to do it anyways. And that's why I say to teams, you know, hey, think about privacy technology as early as you can if you find that all you're saying is rejecting every use case request, right? If you're rejecting 90% of use cases requests, then somebody's going to start a SharePoint server and put all your data there and create their own data product. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying that we've seen some things out there. And I think everybody that's been in this field for a long time has seen some things. And it's about... How do we actually enable people to do their work? Um, but we try to do it safely. I mean, that's that's the goal at the end of the day, right? Yeah. So, so um, I mean, we've covered a whole bunch of different things. One thing I, I do want to talk about as well, though, is, um, I mean, you are writing a book on this, right? Like what, what I, I'm not like trying to, hey, everybody go buy it. I, I do think that everybody should take a, <laughs> a look and see if they should. But like, what was the thing that that about this topic where you said, I think there should be a book here? Because I I, I do. I I don't see this topic brought up enough about like this stuff is important, not just to prevent you from getting into trouble, but, you know, like to comply with your regulators. Like what what was the thing where you said, like, here's the knowledge that I have to share. Is it the, like how to do it or is it the the philosophy? And, you know, I know some people give uh, Jamak and, and her book a little bit of, of grief about, you know, there's all these philosophical quotes throughout it. And she's always kind of, um, I, I did a, a thing with her recently and she was talking about, well, um, how she thinks about data pipelining and, and that if aliens came and saw how silly we were approaching data, they'd laugh at us and things like that. I just love <laughs> the way she thinks about that stuff. But like, what was the thing that made you say, like, there needs to be more focus on this? Is it that people are doing it wrong or people aren't thinking about it at all or that we've gotten to a place where this is no longer theoretical, right? This we have the capability to do this, so it's time to move forward. What 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 was the thing that was making you say, I, I need to write about this, I need to share more knowledge about this? Um, so uh, ironically, O'Reilly just called me up and they were like, hey, we think that we need to have a data privacy book. Are you willing to write it uh, for us? And I was like, oh, sure, that sounds good. Um, but that doesn't preclude the fact that um, the, when I started getting interested in this, I found that there was quite a lot of just very basic information available. And then there was like research. Yeah. <laughs> there was a massive gap in between. It was just like, good luck, have fun reading research papers for the rest of your life. And, um, and I was fine with that. I was happy to do it. Some of it is uh, quite deeply uh, based in probability theory and mathematics. So if you're really interested in that stuff, it can be a lot of fun to, to kind of to choose your own PhD journey that way without getting an actual piece of paper at the end. Um, and I had the beauty of working alongside some wonderful researchers and cryptographers 
who also spent a lot of time whiteboarding with me and teaching me things and activating all my math knowledge. Um, but the reason why I think this book should exist is because I don't think that it should be that hard to learn some of this stuff. You don't have to go get a PhD in it to be able to use this technology, maybe to write your own from scratch. Yeah. But most of us don't write our own code even from scratch these days. And so what I wanted to do is, and what O'Reilly was also interested in, is something that meets people more where they're at and says, okay, how do we move from the most basic privacy stuff to the more advanced stuff without you having to go to ETH Zurich and to study, you know, differential privacy for 10 years? And so that's what I hope hope the book will deliver. Um and I have had a lot of really amazing academics who've helped me along the way. So hat tip to all of you, should any of you hear this. It's, uh, it's funny because that's like the, the thing that I want to do next is, is a startup that actually allows people to pull in all different kinds of articles around the, these things and that you create a learning journey path. And it's not just like, here's the links, but it's like, here's what I learned from this. Like, I'm going to tell you and okay, uh, here's the different pathways you can take. And then it's not just click, 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 because I think so much of this is okay. Like if you want to go learn a technology, you go and you just read all these blog posts and most of the blog posts start from either you must be X level of knowledgeable or they have to keep yeah. saying the same things over and over. And so the first half of every article is the same crap, right? It's the same explanation of, and here is what Apache Cassandra is. Apache Cassandra is a NoSQL database and blah, blah, blah. And so you you don't have any foundation that you can build upon and that, but exactly what you're talking about of taking somebody from, I'm interested in this to, okay, I've got some practical application knowledge, which, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult, but it's a worthy uh, uh, thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you're taking it on. Um, so, I mean, we've talked about a whole bunch of different things. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you think we should have or any way you'd like to wrap up other than buy my book, buy my book? <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, so my book is in early release. It comes out next year. It's called just to let people know it's called Practical Data Privacy. Uh, the target audience is data scientists, but I've been getting some feedback from software folks, and they say that they've learned things. Um, yeah. So so I can say that it does have some general applicability. Um, I'm really excited for any early feedback. So should you have Safari access and you want to get feedback, or should you want an early uh, copy to provide some feedback uh, individually, please feel free to ping me. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter at KJAM with open DMs and, um, and first name, last name at ThoughtWorks. That's pretty obvious and easy. Um, and so those are all ways to reach me. I also have, uh, I have a little uh, newsletter that I would like, that I'm going to restart at some point in time. And if you're super nerdy into math stuff and probability, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Probably Private. Um, and it's at probablyprivate.com. It's a joke on probability and math. There's lots of good jokes in there on math. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll drop links to if all you- that. All that stuff in the show notes and, as well, so people can easily do that. 
Yeah, and mainly I just, I'm really honored, um, Scott, that you invited me and I'm excited to be here. And I just hope to demystify a little bit privacy and to maybe make privacy fun and cool. I don't know, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, and, I, and I think what you just talked about of like, that there is all this probability theory and all this math and all of this. So there's a lot of people that are coming from more of the data management side where this has been a scary topic and it doesn't have to be because it's, it's no longer you have to build all the things that apply your techniques and do all of this stuff versus like this creates good conversations, which can create significant business value. And that this isn't only a cost. This isn't only a feel good cost. If you do this right, you prevent risk you prevent, you know, your regulatory risk, you prevent, you build more trust with your users, with your customers, if you communicate about what you're doing, and that this can actually drive net business value. It's not an easy thing of a copy paste and boom, you drive net business value. But I, I, I just think a lot of what you said, it just all applies to that. So, and, and I'll drop all the links in the, to the stuff in the show notes. So anybody that wants to get into contact, it's just an easy click through on from there. But yeah. Um, well, again, thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you for, for spending this and, and uh, educating me on this, this thing that I know so little about. Uh, but, and as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. Thank you, Scott. And you have to let me know when your learning journeys is, is there. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll set one up for differential privacy for you. So that sounds really cool. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Catherine K. Jams Carton-Jarmel, who's the Principal Data Scientist at ThoughtWorks. You can find a link to her LinkedIn, her early release of her book, her newsletter, and her article on privacy in data mesh in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest, you know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.